0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, before we get into today's program, I want to thank two fellow saloners who have made generous donations to help us with the expenses associated with uh, publishing these podcasts. And those wonderful people are Brett J. and Perry B. So, Perry and Brett, hey, thanks a lot for thinking of us, and uh, I hope that your generosity is rewarded by Santa in a few weeks. And uh, as for Andy O. Oh and anyone else who wants to put the latest podcast of the McKenna series on some CDs for a holiday gift, well, uh, today's podcast will uh, wrap up this lecture series about appreciating imagination. And uh, there are quite a few little surprises in the uh, final talk of this workshop. For example, uh, he begins with his bullseye metaphor for the relative powers of uh, various psychedelic medicines. And uh, then he goes on to make a statement about uh, the DMT elves that I've never heard him make before. And uh, that is where he says, I think that in service to the principle of parsimony, preferring the simplest explanation, these things, namely the beings encountered in DMT space, must be human souls. Now, I don't remember him ever saying this before, so uh, watch for it, because uh, I'm not going to have time to comment on it later. Uh, In in fact, uh, there are quite a few uh, new and interesting ideas here, uh, like his description of what he thinks the eschaton, uh, the end of time, might look like. So, uh, sit back, strap yourself into your seat, and uh, let's enjoy one last ride with Terrence McKenna here in 2009.
1: I dare to hope, having deconditioned myself from my Catholic childhood and gone through existentialism and all that, now I dare to hope that maybe there is some kind of existence beyond the grave.
0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, before we get into today's program, I want to thank two fellow saloners who have made generous donations to help us with the expenses associated with uh, publishing these podcasts. And those wonderful people are brett j and perry b so perry and brett hey thanks a lot for thinking of us and uh, i hope that your generosity is rewarded by santa in a few weeks and uh, as for andy o and anyone else who wants to put the latest podcast of the mckenna series on some cds for a holiday gift well uh today's podcast will uh, wrap up this lecture series about appreciating imagination and uh, there are quite a few little surprises in the uh, final talk of this workshop. For example, uh, he begins with his bullseye metaphor for the relative powers of uh, various psychedelic medicines. And uh, then he goes on to make a statement about uh, the DMT elves that I've never heard him make before. And uh, that is where he says, I think that in service to the principle of parsimony, preferring the simplest explanation, these things namely the beings encountered in DMT space, must be human souls. Now, I don't remember him ever saying this before, so uh, watch for it, because uh, I'm not going to have time to comment on it later. Uh, In in fact, uh, there are quite a few uh, new and interesting ideas here, uh, like his description of what he thinks the eschaton, uh, the end of time, might look like. So uh, sit back, strap yourself into your seat, and uh, let's enjoy one last ride with Terence McKenna here in 2009.
1: Well, first of all, let me say I don't know, but then here's what I think. Uh, the model that I've always carried in my head is of a target, like a bullseye. And at the center of the bullseye is the dimethyltryptamine, high-dose experience, which, you know, even though I've spent my whole career raving about how strange it is, I always hit low. I mean, it is beyond description. Language fails. Your language, my language, everybody's language. And as you move out from that, maybe the next circle out is... uh high dose ayahuasca followed by high dose psilocybin or maybe those two are reversed and then further out uh, LSD and then further out things like 2CB and then yet further out things like uh, ecstasy and what's leaving the picture are, first of all, intense three-dimensional hallucinations, then intense two-dimensional hallucinations, and the more exotic transformations of the mental state. But I have the feeling that we're always aiming for the center of this mandala. Somebody else might have a different model of consciousness. Uh, Roland Fisher had uh, a toroidal model and various states of arousal. But to my mind, if you raise the dose of any psychedelic, it becomes more and more like DMT. You have to take over 500 micrograms of LSD for it to be like DMT. Very few people these days do that much acid because it brings a lot of physical stuff with it. Ayahuasca at moderate doses is the classical hallucinogen of Amazonian shamanism that you've all read about, but double that dose and it becomes indistinguishable from DMT. Same with psilocybin. uh, If a five-gram trip is a classic psilocybin trip, an eight-gram trip is like a DMT trip. So... Now, some people are saying of alpha-salvinorine that it's much stronger than DMT. It's much more frightening and bizarre. Um, just to save my sanity, I choose not to believe that. Uh, because I'd, if there's, I've been saying for years, if there's something stronger than that, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> because that definitely pushed me as far as I wanted to go. I, uh, my son, I think, has more experience with all of this than anybody else I know. And I said to him, where would you put it? And he said, it's almost as strong as DMT. And so it's, it, it's sort of like that. But then over this, set of values and comparisons I've just made, you have to overlay the fact that like your blue eyes, your height, your body weight, your intelligence, and everything else about you that makes you unique, your uh, inherited uh, 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 allotment of drug synapses is unique. And this is why some people are sensitive to drugs, some people insensitive, some people extremely sensitive. And one of the things about exploring consciousness with substances is you have to sort of learn what works for you. You may have gotten the idea from hanging out with the wrong people, that the way you explore drugs is by doing as many as possible and in as many combinations as possible. I couldn't do that. I have never done that, and I can't do that. My body just can't take it. Uh, if I want a more intense drug experience, I take more of one drug. Uh, but part of exploring this area is to learn what works for you. For example, uh, the most dramatic and easy-to-understand example, I think, is cannabis. Most people, after a preliminary brush with cannabis, which may last years, tend to decide that it somehow interferes, or that it, they have memory problems or feelings of social paranoia, or th- and abandon it. Some small percentage of, of people, Experience no short-term memory loss and basically can't live without it. I, I speak from first-hand knowledge of this condition. So, uh, learning what works for you is, uh, is very important and then pushing that. Push that, uh, to its limits. What fascinates me, just, I'll just unload my personal opinion on you, are the tryptamines. Uh, I always found LSD too, what I call, uh, abrasively psychoanalytical. I don't want to endlessly reflect on my childhood upbringing and whether I'm a good or a bad person. I mean, I'll do a little bit of that, but I think I got that under control. I, I, I'm, I'm not interested in myself in quite the way some people are interested in themselves. What I'm interested in, and what's always been the Holy Grail for me, are visual hallucinations. And people have said, you're you're a nut on this subject. But the reason I'm so into visual hallucinations is because when I'm seeing something that I could not previously have even imagined, then I am completely convinced I'm in the presence of an other because I couldn't think that up, and yet I'm looking at it. Uh, low doses of psychedelics or moderate doses of psychedelics transform the quality of thought. You think faster, think deeper, think odder, think broader, but you need more for that to burst through into f- into hallucination and that always has fascinated me as a it's just I guess in my personality. I was thinking some months ago about the books that have really influenced me in my life and you know we try to make a respectable list that makes us seem profound so you know Moby Dick, Finnegans Wake, Whitehead, yeah say okay that's the public list what are the real books <laughs> Well, Bartholomew Cubbins and the 500 Hats, that was the biggie. But a really important book for me was a little book that Aldous Huxley wrote almost as a throwaway. I'm sure he barely gave it a thought. Uh, It's a book called The Art of Seeing. Seeing. And it basically, the message of this book can be given in one sentence. Pay attention to what your eyes are telling you. The eyes are it. And it's the visual thing that is so thrilling, so sexy, so infinitely deep. And in that book, Huxley tells you how to look at a painting by basically clear your mind, open your eyes, stand still. That's very important when viewing paintings, stand still. And let it come in, and then he gave advice. And, you know, this is advice which I've seen acted out in both of my children. Incredibly simple advice in the world of child rearing and incredibly important. And the advice was, draw from nature. Literally, with a pencil. Draw things because drawing things forces you to look at them and don't draw from pictures. If you want to draw a bowl of fruit, get a bowl of fruit. And then what you look at is you see how, you say, oh, I see. When an object is red, its shadows are not black. Its shadows are deep pink. And when an object has this curvature, then it spreads light around itself like this. And as you learn to look, This is a very impersonal process. You're not thinking about your childhood traumas or any of that stuff. You're really getting into the world, and this is how the world can communicate back to you. The world is something to to look at, and that attitude in the presence of psychedelics will throw open a cornucopia of riches to you. Did you want to say something? Oh, well, I, sh- I whenever I... I mean, cannabis is in a different category. I mix cannabis with air, with light, with being awake, with being asleep. There was a period in my life when I used to awaken at 3 a.m. in order to smoke because I couldn't go from 11.30 to 6 uh, uh, without it. I mean, granted, I was in Asia and the rules were different. Uh, no, I, I don't know what life is like without cannabis. I hear there is such a thing. <laughs> but, uh, no, what I mean is, you know, I, I know people who say, well, we had a really far out uh, time Saturday night. Uh, we uh, did 120 milliliters of ketamine and followed it with uh, ecstasy a half hour later and then we broke out the nitrous and somebody had a little 5 meo with them and uh, and i and then i say how was it i say, far out (laughs) and i don't doubt it for a minute Uh, but Well, one, I think, I always want, I don't want to go any place that I can't find my way back to, because I might want to show somebody. And, you know, uh, it's sort of like the multi-body problem in mathematics. You know, you can calculate every point in a system if there are only three body, uh, two bodies, but you only have to add a third before it becomes beyond uh, calculation. And drug synergies are an absolutely unexplored area. You cannot go to the medical literature and find any papers on what happens when you combine LSD with 2CB. There isn't such a paper on this planet. So if you're going to do that, just know that nobody has ever been there before. And I don't mean intellectually, I mean physiologically. I don't know very much about the death of this writer who calls himself D.M. Turner, but uh, he did die. And his book, his best-known book, is a book that I felt was completely irresponsible because it advocated these multiple synergistic drug doses, stuff like I just said. 2CB plus ketamine plus nitrous plus E plus this plus that. That's not how I would do it. I say, you know, single pure substances, and if you're unsatisfied with the experience, as Dr. Leary used to say, when in doubt, double the dose. But he didn't say, when in doubt, empty the medicine cabinet. <laughs> uh, just double the dose. Thank you. <laughs> And Tim was a pretty reckless and wild-ass kind of guy. So if he took that position, I think we don't have to be ashamed to line up behind that. Yeah. ketamine. It has a lot of enthusiasts. Um, First thing, the most effective way to do it is by injection. Automatically, this raises flags of alarm for me. I just somewhere picked up the idea that banging things is a bad idea. Um, But let's move past that, because it can be snorted. And uh, anyway, uh, ketamine is what's called a disassociative anesthetic. It is not an alkaloid. It is a veterinary anesthetic. In other words, if you have a racehorse and you need to put it wrap its tendon or work on it in some way, this is the drug of choice. Um, I cannot deny that the experiences that I had, and I only had five, were very, very interesting. Uh, I always did it in the presence of a physician, and I always did quite, as I understand it, quite high doses. In other words, I did around 140 milliliters. Uh, mil- yeah, milliliters. Uh, one of the things about ketamine is it's active over a huge range. Some people who roll it into their lifestyle tend to do small doses, like 40, 50, 60. When used as an anesthetic uh, in pediatric surgery and stuff like that, 600 milliliters IV push, that would be like being hit by a tra- freight train moving at 10 times the speed of sound. You would never know what hit you. Um, uh, it's a kind, for me, I'm just speaking subjectively, Uh, It was a sort of empty space it was a light-filled space and the metaphor that came to me was It's like a new skyscraper and they don't have any tenants So there are these endless hallways lit by fluorescent lights and wonderful water coolers every 300 feet but there's nobody there and uh I talked to Rupert about this because one of the things we've kicked around over the years is the idea that drugs are like morphogenetic fields. And so, for instance, when you take psilocybin, it takes you. And in a sense, you are participating in every psilocybin trip anybody ever had. And because it was taken for thousands of years by Mesoamerican shamans It's been decorated by them in a sense. It has their mark on it And so the the morphogenetic field is extremely stable Nothing you can do in there You may be able to carve your initials on a picnic table or something But not you're not going to be able to make major changes in that landscape but suppose we have a suppose you're a drug chemist and suppose you read one of Sasha's papers where he tosses out the thought that the O methylation in the four position of the trimethoxy isomer of the this and that might be hallucinogenic and you make it nobody has ever taken this drug it's a synthetic drug you have made it and now you're going to take it and in a sense If you come down saying this was an incredibly beautiful, visionary experience, the next person is very likely to have a beautiful, visionary experience. If you come down saying it was nightmarish and I felt bugs crawling under my skin and stuff like this, what's happening is the morphogenetic field is crystallizing around this drug. And the feeling I had with ketamine was it's really pretty undefined territory. Um, the one thing I learned from ketamine, and I actually have—I have to give it credit for this—is I got so loaded on that stuff that I lost the concept "loaded," and that's never happened to me before. I couldn't—I—I couldn't. I, I couldn't understand what was happening because i couldn't remember what being high is and so here i am and i sort of come into awareness and i say what is this and then the answer is who knows next question who's asking answer who knows and so i just look at it for a while And then suddenly, out of left field, this aha experience, I must be stoned. And then it's like everything crystallized, that's it, (laughs) I'm a human being. I took a drug. I'm lying on the floor. This is a trip. He said, oh, this is a trip. Gotcha. Now I know what's happening. We're having a trip. Okay, let's have the trip. And But until I got that sorted out, it was like the biggest, huh? Uh, so I I would not, um, I, I don't prefer it because m- part of my ethic I guess you would say, is that you should be able to communicate your experiences. It's almost like an obligation. It's like if you go fishing on our lake, you should give some of the fish to the village. If you go fishing and catch a lot of fish and eat them out in the boat and come back with nothing but bones for the village, then this is kind of bad behavior. So... uh I stay clear of ketamine. I have a, a bias that used to be stronger uh, against synthetic substances. Uh, uh, but again, uh, in fairness, I have to say um, these drugs, people have different kinds of experiences. Like I've said to people on ketamine, you don't really hallucinate in the way that I want to hallucinate. People say, Oh no, I had fantastic, it was beyond DMT. Uh so again, the individual thing. Um, and then what's the final thing? And then just physical things about ketamine. I don't I don't like a drug so strong that the house could burn down around you and you would never bat an eye. And that could certainly happen on ketamine. At height you have not a clue they could remove your head and you would not bat an eye uh, and the other thing i noticed about ketamine is it really sticks to your ribs in other words the experience lasts an hour you come down but the next day you're driving on the freeway and comes away where you say oh my god you know what is this and i think it it to sequesters in fatty tissue or something. And so that that makes it a, a little dicey. I um, hope I didn't rain on anybody's parade here. The people who are into it are passionately into it. I accused one guy one time of being a monopharmaphile. <laughs> I said, my God, you know, you won't take a drink, you won't have a hit, you won't do... But this stuff, (laughs) five times a day. (laughs) Well, I'm as interested as you are. I don't have any special information. I did talk earlier in the weekend about this model of the hyperdimensional object intruding into three-dimensional space-time and through the miracle of metabolism, wrapping matter around itself for a few years, and then... When the hyperdimensional form retracts out of this lower dimensional matrix, the matter that it's organized simply falls apart. Um, I like that model. Um, my DMT trips, as I I think I mentioned this too. I've given it to some Tibetan guys, and they they said, you know you can't go further than that and return. What he what he actually said was, it's the lesser lights. The lesser lights appear at the beginning of the bardo. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing about DMT, and we didn't talk about it much this weekend, is that it is an inhabited space. A huge percentage of the people who take it encounter entities of some sort in there not entities like wombats and foxes, and, but entities with intelligence of some sort, with language of some sort. Well, remember I talked about the principle of parsimony, of preferring the simplest explanation first? Well, when you have a drug which conveys you into an inhabited space, even the simplest explanation is going to be pretty Baroque. Uh some people, including myself, wanted to leap to the conclusion, well these must be the aliens. We finally found their hive. It isn't under the Atlantic trench, it isn't inside Mount Everest. It's they're hiding inside this organic molecule. Uh, but I think in service of the principle of parsimony, preferring the simplest explanation, these things must be human souls uh it's easier for me to believe in the human soul than to believe in a colony of extraterrestrials camped inside an alkaloid. Uh, but it's not that easy for me to believe in human souls. But still, the feeling you have from these things is one of immense affection for humanity. That wouldn't come from a diplomatic mission from Zenebel Ganubi. This intense love, we're uh, and so I dare to hope, having deconditioned myself from my Catholic childhood and gone through existentialism and all that. Now I dare to hope that maybe there is some kind of existence beyond the grave. One of the funny feelings there are a number of how could you call it thematic layers in the DMT experience. But one of the thematic layers is, weird as this place is that you burst into, it's somebody very strange worked very hard to produce a place that they thought would be reassuring to a human being. And the analogy, it's stronger than an analogy, the feeling that comes through is this is like a maternity ward. I It's as though you're being born. And these marvelous, self-transforming, Fabergé, crystalline, 4D toys that they're handing out in this space may be, to them, nothing more than the equivalent of those Uh, extruded plastic geometric shapes that we hang on a string over a bassinet. And if you ask a child psychologist, why do we do this? They say, well, it uh, coordinates the child's ability to see spatial and so forth and so on. It's very like that. You have been born into an alien world and the only thing you can do is gape basically gape in utter amazement and uh, everyone is surrounding you and, uh, and they're saying, you know, welcome, it's okay, be happy. Well, then if it is like a maternity ward, then one can know as much about whatever universe that is as one could deduce about this universe from looking at the four walls of a maternity ward in a small hospital in, say, Salinas. In other words, if you were to actually die rather than smoke DMT, then, then, if we follow this model, then you would be in that place, but there would be no going back to this world after five minutes. Instead, there would be the next five minutes in that place, followed by the next Five minutes, and I can tell within hours you would be beyond the reach of all human, anything you have ever called humanness or thought of. In other words, this isn't a world where one comes back and whispers in the ears of people and bangs doors in the middle of the night. It appears like once out of the body, this incredibly enfolded and compacted field called the soul begins to unfold into its death rite, I suppose you could say. And quickly one would become incomprehensible to this world. And all that is retained is the affection for for us in our limited... uh, Situation. Uh, of course, thinking along these lines, I've looked at the literature of near death experience. What those people are describing is something far more mundane than a DMT trip. Either they are dumbing down the DMT trip and suppressing the oddness of it, or they're having a quite different experience because what's being said in the near death thing, generally, generally, is a tunnel mm-hmm. and then r- loving relatives reassuring and familiar people the dmt thing is a tunnel but it isn't loving relatives waiting at the end it's a welcoming committee of professional midwives and they they help you through so i would suggest with a uh, great heat, that if we want to study the near-death and after-death experience, that actually you come far closer to dying, whatever that means, on DMT than you do in drownings and things like that. Well, any situation can be looked at from a point of view that reveals the whole fractal. In other words, what it's saying is experience is holographic on one level but linearly sequential on another level in a way this leads into or this is a continuation of this discussion of death because if we leave off the historical modeling and turn toward the modeling of an individual life with the time wave Then again, there is a message of hope It says the most novel and amazing thing that will ever happen to you is the last thing that will ever happen to you. And I would like to believe that. I would like to believe that we gather our experience, we become wiser, we meet people, life becomes more novel, we have children, they have children, we have success, we have failure, our life, you just get, if you're living right, your life should just get more and more baroque, beautiful complicated mysterious and then you die and then it really gets interesting <laughs> uh, that's what i'm that's what this all seems to want us to believe let's put it that way this is defi- and then people say well then if if the world is fractal if then is it not true that the evolution of an individual could be extrapolated to be the evolution of the whole system. And then that leads to the mildly unsettling possibility that what this great transition we're moving toward is is not uh, T1 for everybody, but D1 for everybody. In other words, death. Death is the thing that really stirs us. We don't know what it is. We don't know whether we're supposed to flee from it or race toward it. Uh, and people say, well, then, is it possible that, just to take the date 2012 as a marker, is it possible that everyone would die? It's possible. Uh, I've looked a lot at asteroid impactors because The people who study these things know that this is not an act of God or a miracle, that this happens. It has happened. It will happen. And it happens on different scales from things like Meteor Crater in Arizona 50,000 years ago. Everything within 800 miles of that impact died instantly 50,000 years ago. But 65 million years ago, an object the size of Manhattan impacted in the Gulf of Campeche, and nothing on this planet larger than a chicken walked away from that. Well now, if you talk about ecological disaster, there's never been one like that in the history of the planet. Thousands, tens of thousands of species died. Entire orders of animals were wiped out. The continents were rearranged. But guess what? The flowering plants of which we are so fond and our own dear selves of which we are even more fond would never have had a chance to insinuate themselves into the evolutionary life of this planet had there not been that clearing out of the reptilian climax. So then you look at this You say, well, was this the greatest mass extinction in history or the greatest leap forward for biology in the history of the planet? And the answer is, it was both. Out of enormous death comes an enormous surge in the domain of organic novelty. Uh, I prefer to think that it is not a planetary catastrophe or a mass dying. And I'll, I'll tell you why. And this is a place, this is, now we're working from the notebooks. In other words, this is not prepared for public consumption. This is something I meditate on in the baths. I can't help but notice that as novelty increases in time, according to this model, that the spatial domain of its focus narrows. So, for instance, in the early phase of the time wave, the, the stars are condensing and the galaxies are forming. We could say that the entire universe is moving toward novelty. But once carbon chemistry appears, the cycles of Fusion in stars and production of heavy elements and things like this are stabilized and the domain of novelty becomes biology and for a billion and a half years biology evolves and adumbrates its forms and moves from the prokaryotes to the eukaryotes to the multicellular the conquest of the land begins but then, uh, with the emergence of language-using and tool-using higher primates, in a sense, novelty leaves the domain of organic life. And organic life becomes metastable, and evolution and mutation happens. But where the action has moved to is in to the epigenetic domain entirely defined on this planet by human activities and so the human beings are the carriers of novelty and that has gone on until about um oh pick a number but basically 3000 to 2500 years ago and then the novelty seems to concentrate itself in southern europe The Greeks take some kind of step that no other people have ever taken. You know, even today, if you go around the world and visit tribal people and ask to see their art, they show you, if you ask to see depictions of human beings, they show you symbolic depictions of human beings. That's what an African mask is. That's what a Sepik River is carving. is These are symbols of human beings. The Greek mind crossed an invisible boundary, and somebody said, let's take a block of marble or some clay, and let's not symbolize a human being. Let us make a perfect topological simulacrum of a human being, a face that looks like a face, Flesh that looks like flesh it, it was as though the Greek consciousness rose to the surface and left the unconscious behind and the eyes were opened and no longer saw through symbolic filters but instead said nature in and of itself this is the foundation for science and art as we know it so the novelty then was largely in the hands and largely, I'm rushing here, exceptions are obvious, in the hands of what we call the Greco-Roman mind. And uh, and so it has been for a couple of thousand years. We'll then pick a number. A um, hundred years or so ago, It it further contracted the novelty. It further contracted itself into the high-tech industrial democracies. And Now it has further retracted. One of the problems we're having in our society is there's a bifurcation going on in society. Part of us are going with the new novel technologies that knit us together and make us dimensionless telepathic creatures through the Internet and some people are digging in their heels and saying, oh, no, no beyond newspapers, I can't go uh, and so those people are being left behind. They are practicing old-style culture in an equilibrium state. So now it isn't even all of the high-tech populations of the industrial democracies. As we get closer to 2012, if this process uh, proceeds, then the source of novelty will constrict even further. And I guess it may eventually come down to one or two people or a group of people, and maybe those people will make a machine, and then the machine will be the source of the novelty, and all of us will be put out to the pasture of equilibrium and maintain the rest of the world as it was, but the novelty will have focused to some kind of incredibly intense point and so, looking at it from that model, it's hard to see how it could be an asteroid impact or something like that, because that would affect all biology, all geology. It would completely violate this long-standing tendency of the novelty to um, uh, concentrate itself. Well, now the Buddhists have an interesting perspective that maybe has something to do with this, There are many schools of Buddhism, and I don't want to get into that, but uh, there are schools which hold the following doctrine, that if a single person could attain enlightenment, then all sentient beings in the cosmos would attain enlightenment instantly. In other words, that only one person or one being has to break through the boundary for the entire state system to collapse and rearrange itself. It's December 21st, 2012, and through the worldwide VRML hookup of the Internet, everybody with an IQ above 10 has gathered in the great collective space to witness the first attempt to send a human being through time. And uh, at the World Temporal Studies Institute at La Charrera in the Amazon, uh, the president of so-and-so makes a speech, the lady time traveler makes a speech, she straps on her helmet, she steps into the machine, the fanfare for the common man is played, a button is pushed, and... uh, Off she goes into the future. Now, what has always been put against time travel schemes is what's called the grandfather paradox. And this is easy to understand. It goes like this. If time travel were possible, I could travel back in time and kill my grandfather. If I did that, I wouldn't exist. So I couldn't do it. Therefore, there is a closed loop of paradox. Therefore, time travel is impossible. I put this to the mushroom, and it said, well, uh, time travel is possible, but you can only travel backward in time as far as the moment of the invention of the first time machine. You can't travel further back in time than that because there were no time machines before that. So it's a kind of barrier. Well, so then I thought, mm. so then here was my model of what would happen when the lady Temponot sails off into the future. Let's forget about her and ask the question, what happens next in our world? And my first guess was what happens next is thousands and thousands of time machines arrive from all points in the future. They have come back through time to witness the first time machine take off. It's as though you had a Piper Cub that you could fly to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina to that windy morning in late December when the Brothers Wright rolled it out of their bicycle shop and fired her up. And then I said, well, but wait a minute, we haven't dealt with the grandfather paradox. One of these time machines from the distant future, on its way to the first time flight, could stop off and kill the grandfather of the driver of that time machine. And we haven't gotten anywhere at all. So then, I, I produced a slightly more complicated model, but at the, but it works, and so here's, here's what it is. It's that because the future is not what we think it is, uh, well, here's a, here's a, a metaphor which makes it more clear. In this world that we're living in right now, we have people such as Bill Gates and his research and development teams, and we have people such as the upriver people in that I spent time with, bare-assed people living at a very minimal cultural level. Gates and his people and this Amazon tribe occupy the same planet and the same moment in history. But who is influencing who? Very few people in the world are taking up the Amazonian lifestyle or point of view. Millions and millions of people are going Gates' direction, and more and more will. So what I concluded from that is that advanced states of culture tend to squeeze out or mitigate less advanced states of culture. Now, let's return to the time flight. What happens when the lady at Temponaut goes into the future is not that time machines arrive from all over the future. What happens is that the entire rest of the history of the universe happens instantly. In other words, a future Evolutionary developments, conquest of the galaxy, vast technologies that allow star flight and wormhole travel and all that, the fruits of all that are delivered instantly to our doorstep in 2012. I call it the God Whistle Model. In other words, we end the whole thing. We, we collapse the state vector and everything goes into a state of novelty. And it's a, And what happens then, I think, is uh, the universe becomes entirely made of light. This is a sort of the cherry on the cake. You know that there is uh, something in physics called the principle of parity. This is that particles can appear out of nothingness as long as they appear in pairs such that, after a certain period of time, the two pairs and not the, the two portion the, the members of the pair, encounter and annihilate each other. And when this happens, physicists say parity is conserved. Now, it's known in quantum physics that there is a phenomenon called vacuum fluctuation. A vacuum fluctuation is a situation where in absolutely empty space, suddenly, out of the quantum subspace, particles jump into existence. They follow trajectories. They encounter each other. They annihilate each other. Parity is conserved. And so it's okay. It's okay. Well, so then you talk to these quantum physicists and you say, well, well, how large can one of these vacuum fluctuations be? And they say, well, m- most of the, they last milliseconds, nanoseconds. You say, well, is there a theoretical upper limit on the size of a vacuum fluctuation dictated by theory? And they say, no, no, no. It's simply that the longer the fluctuation lasts, the rarer it is. So, in other words, the longer a fluctuation lasts, the less likely you are to encounter one. Well, then you say, well, is it possible that this entire universe is such a vacuum fluctuation? say, well, yes, but that would be very rare to have such a long one you say, well, hell, you only need one. <laughs> Calculating the probability of a unique event is a fool's game. I mean, it's either 100% sure or zero sure. It's an, uh, so uh, so here is a model, and I took this from the Swedish physicist Hans Alfvén, who hasn't gotten enough credit, but who's really a very interesting thinker. Imagine that the universe is this kind of vacuum fluctuation. A 17-billion-year-long vacuum fluctuation. Well, what it means then is that at the Big Bang, not one universe was born, but two. And they sailed off into super spaces and have no connectivity with each other, or they have bell, non-local connectivity or something. But anyway, they are distinctly separate. And but they are unbeknown to each other on a collision course with each other. Parity must be conserved eventually. And a model like this holds open the possibility of the instantaneous transformation of the entire cosmos because the collision of these two universes would not occur in three-dimensional space. It would occur in a higher dimensional space. So, this cosmological model holds out the possibility that all matter in the universe could be instantaneously cancelled in this encounter with the antimatter twin that was born at the beginning of the cosmos. Okay, if you're still following, we're almost to pay dirt. Every particle known to physics, possesses an antiparticle, which is locked into this parity-conserving thing I've laid out for you, with one exception, one astonishing and amazing exception. The photon has no antiparticle. There is no antiphoton. So this universe, that is on a collision course with itself in hyperspace, at the moment of the conservation of parity, all matter vanishes. And what is left is a universe made entirely of light. And we have no model, for or I have no model, uh, for a universe made of light. There would be no gravity, because gravity is a property of matter such a universe could be modeled. And then the question is, well, then what would happen to forms? What would happen to your body, my body, this planet? The answer is, no one can know. But it is very interesting that the esoteric traditions of nearly every religion uh, talk about light a great deal. Talk about ascent to the light, cultivation of the light, the after-death vehicle as a thing made of light. So uh, I just put this out here because it occurred to me. My imagination in an effort to make the assumptions of novelty theory congruent with the known laws of physics, I discovered, you know, this sounds like wild hair stuff, but no violation of the known laws of physics is involved in this scenario. So perhaps what enlightenment is, is it happens to an entire universe when it drops its matter and antimatter out of its, uh, out of its structure and it becomes entirely made of light. That would certainly fulfill uh, the novelty theory. Anyway, that's enough of that malarkey. Well, you see, the way the novelty theory is structured is you have this wave uh, and it is iterated on different scales. And iteration, if you have a given level, let's call it A, above A is a larger level that is A times 64. Below A is a smaller level that is one sixty-fourth of A. And wherever you are in the hierarchy, this is true. Levels above, 64 times larger. Levels below, 64 times smaller. Well, modern astrophysics says they're arguing about it right now, but the universe is between, is under 20 billion years old. Everybody agrees on that. And the question is, is it 9, 12, 13, 14? but it's under 20. The, the time wave has a cycle. The largest cycle I have found necessary, except for the prime number research, is a 72 billion year cycle. So let's call that the top cycle, the A level. A 72 billion year cycle, plenty of time to, for the universe to evolve to its present state below that level is a cycle one sixty-fourth that size. What would that be? Roughly 1.2 billion years. At the initiation of that cycle, uh, uh, I don't know, some dramatic thing happens in biology. Below it is another cycle. Uh, if the B level is 1.2 billion years. Then the next level is 16fourth of that. I think it's roughly 275 million years. Next cycle, um, divided by 64, whatever it is, uh, 750,000 years. Uh, next cycle. And you see where I'm going. Well, eventually you get to a cycle that's 4,306 years in duration. That is basically the cycle of late history. I mean, certainly there was history before 4,000 years, but the continuous march of global civilization over the last 4,000 years. Well, then the next cycle down is only 67 years long and I mentioned it last night, from 1945 to 2012, each cycle begins with a bang, literally. Uh, Below the 67-year cycle, there is a 384-day cycle, and and that that will run from late 2011, somewhere in November 2011, to the end of 2012. And I call that the year of the jackpot. It's a 13-month year. But the entire history of the universe will be reprised in that 384-day period. Well, then comes a six-day cycle. By this time, either I will have gently bowed out or the entire world will be aware of what is happening because the novelty will be so intense imagine a 6 day cycle in which the entire previous 67 year 4306 year na, 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 up to the top level are all being compressed and replayed in 6 days well then comes the hour and 35 minute cycle then comes the minute and a half cycle then comes the 1.3 second cycle now at that point 1.3 seconds if we assume that the cycles cannot be iterated beyond the level of Planck's constant which is 6.55 times 10 to the minus 23rd erg seconds the way for you to think of that is as a jiffy uh it's (laughs) the it's the grain of the universe we don't feel the need to go be to s- discuss lengths of time shorter than that because there aren't lengths of time shorter than that. Time comes in those packets of that size. Uh, well, if you're at 1.3 seconds cycle, you still have 13 cycles to go through before you reach the realm of Planck's constant. And you have come through 13 cycles. So the universe is only half done 1.3 seconds before its end. That's why asking what will happen in 2012 is preposterous. The mind fails. Half of the universe's evolutionary unfolding will occur in the last few milliseconds of its existence because of the asymptotic acceleration of the expression of novelty. So it's this thing which began very gently, very stately, the march of the atoms, you know, the condensation of the stars and the galaxies, the emergence of biology, the emergence of higher animals, the emergence of... and just into then a screeching photo finish where all the stuff is bundled together, squeezed together, connected, transformed, lifted into higher dimensions. And see, this is not a process we can take responsibility for or discuss our guilt or innocence. This is the cosmos itself tearing loose from its previous constraints and moving ever faster toward ever greater freedom with ever more appetite and momentum until it is It achieves its goal, which is infinite novelty throughout all space and time. Holographic connectedness, god-mindedness, you know, whatever your vocabulary is, yeah. Oh, yeah, this is a completely legitimate move. I mean, it's mind-boggling to think of this in human scales of time that half of the universe's becoming occurred in a few milliseconds, But dig the fact, that is the position of orthodox physics as we sit here. It's simply that they say it happened at the beginning. I say it'll happen at the end. What they're saying in physics now is that the universe came into, the Big Bang occurred, and then some, you know, a few nanoseconds after the Big Bang, there was this thing called the inflationary expansion phase. It lasted a few nanoseconds, and in those few nanoseconds, the universe became several orders, uh, tens of orders of magnitude larger than it was. So it's a it's a legitimate move in physics, however counterintuitive it may seem on the human scale, yeah. Have you looked at the many worlds? Well, the problem with the many worlds theory is it just It violates the principle of parsimony. In other words, that is not the simplest explanation. That's an. Do you all know what this is? It's the idea that whenever a process in the universe encounters a bifurcation point, that it goes both ways. In other words. And and so the multiplication of possibilities in a situation like that is staggering, and I just don't see, I just don't feel the need for it. If I understood Wheeler's mathematics better, I might, but that theory has been around since the middle 70s, and he has a very respected position at Princeton, but he doesn't seem to be able to sway His colleagues, which doesn't mean he's wrong. I'm just saying uh, It it's a bit baroque for my taste Well once beyond the zero point By definition novelty must mean the simultaneous realization of of bifurcations of all sorts in other words what Ultimate novelty must mean is anything we say it means Uh, There are there are no limitations when novelty soars to infinity the universe is a series of Impediments to the expression of novelty and when it has overcome all those impediments There is a flawless higher dimensional matrix throughout all being, I guess, is how you'd put it. Yeah. No, that's another can of strings, uh, and uh, you know, that's a different thing and more exotic. There's a lot of this stuff going around. You know, I, I am by no means the strangest cat on the block. Is Guy Alan Guth? Have any of you looked at his website? This is a guy who's being paid a salary by MIT, for God's sake. And his thing is all about making universes. And he says we can make universes and put them on the shelf. You know, made this one in February, botched that one in March, and uh, talks about how the ultimate proof of the direction in which modern physics is moving is to make a universe. After all, if, if they begin from an area smaller than the diameter of the hydrogen atom, a major laboratory could just stamp them out like hotcakes. Of course, the question is, what are they good for? Uh, what do you do with a universe once you've made one? But a- as an exercise in the imagination, I, you know, take a look at what this guy is into. Uh, let me just try to sum this up, not certainly to sum up the ideas, because the ideas are not really that important. They may be true, they may be untrue, they may reside in a domain where those rules don't apply. The feeling that I hope you take away from all of this, when you are most self-reliant, you know, maybe you don't understand ten-dimensional vector calculus. Then don't use that tool to understand. Hone the tools that you have and try to create models and understand that all models are provisional. This is the antidote to the idea of ideology. Ideology is, is when you believe something passionately. Models are when you dispassionately attempt to define the operation of a system. And the word model implies that you are perfectly willing to discard the model when a better model comes along. I mean, get a grip, people. Where is it writ in adamantine that talking monkeys should be able to understand the universe? If you met a termite, who told you that he was on a quest to understand the universe, a certain lip-curling cynicism would ensue. (laughs) Well, do you think you're better positioned than that termite to undertake that? So the thing is to understand what one understands and then to build outward from that. And the tools are mathematics, Drugs, attention to phenomena, intuition, community, and inspiration. And uh, these things may not solve your marital problems or uh, increase your earning power, but they will put you in touch with the larger dynamic of being. I think being is most appreciated when it is understood Good. That's why worship raises my hackles. Worship is is what animals do to the mystery, because they can't assimilate or understand it if they even deal with it at all. But true religiosity is a man is is uh, signified by honest intellectual efforts to model and understand. And it's by that process that we increase um, our connectivity to the universe and the depth and richness of our connectivity to our community. That's what it really is all about. That's our glory, to understand, to model, to describe, to explore, to appreciate. So meet me at the waterfall at the top of the river. Thank you very much.
0: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Meet me at the waterfall at the top of the river. That sure has a nice ring to it, don't you think? But as I said earlier, I won't be commenting on today's talk because there are a couple of other things I want to cover and we're already over my normal time limit. But uh, there is one thing I've been putting off for the past couple of weeks and I want to be sure to cover it now. While we've talked about it here in the salon before, I thought that uh, maybe we're due for another go at it, and that is the desire of some of our fellow saloners to uh, become involved in psychedelic research as a profession. Now, uh, Rosemary, one of our fellow saloners, raised the issue again in an email, and uh, here is part of what she asked. I know you've had a couple of podcasts that answer this question that I'm about to ask, but there's so many to sort through to find this one little answer. One of the podcasts had a letter from Ann Shulgin stating how young people can get involved in psychedelic research. All I remember was to volunteer as much as possible. And uh, then Rosemary went on to uh, describe her particular situation, which uh, I won't go into here in order to maintain her privacy. But her situation isn't all that different from uh, yours or uh, many of our other fellow slaughters. Uh So Rosemary then goes on to say, So I figure I have two choices save money as much as I can, and escape from this whole mess. Or I could go back to school and try to find my place in this broken society. Well, one of the few hopes I have for society is psychedelic research. How do I get involved again? What's the best degree to start with? Neurosciences? Psychology? Anything else? I'm also saving up for the next Burning Man to hopefully meet more people in this community, the people that want to make changes. Also, I want to thank you for what you do and for giving me hope that there's still people out there that care as much as I do about our sacraments and how they can change this world for the better. Well, uh, thank you for those kind words, Rosemary, and uh, I certainly understand your predicament. To be honest, I'm uh, glad to be in my 68th year and not my 18th year. While uh, life may be a lot more interesting these days, it also is considerably more challenging, and uh, there are a lot more choices to be made. Now, I can't remember either uh, what podcast had that advice from Ann Shulgin, so uh, I took the lazy way out and uh, contacted a few of the elders and asked their opinions. And uh, one of the people who uh, quickly responded was John Hanna, the uh, producer of the Mind States conferences and who is uh, currently a senior editor at uh, the Arrowwood Center. Uh, John has uh, also been the editor of many publications and books involving psychedelics and including my book, The Spirit of the Internet. Here's what John had to say. If she has not yet read it, I'd point her to Andrew Sewell's article that appeared in the Entheogen Review titled, So You Want to Be a Psychedelic Researcher. It's posted online at Arrowhead here, and he uh, gives the URL, which is a long one, Uh, But if you go to uh, AeroWid.org and uh, search for Andrew Sewell, S-E-W-E-L-L, I'm sure you'll find it. And uh, I'll put a link to it on uh, today's uh, program notes on the psychedelicsalon.org webpage. Then John also goes on to say, Going to Burning Man to meet like-minded folks is also a great idea, which deserves encouraging. Also, uh, I received a very uh, thoughtful reply from Alicia Danforth, who You will remember from my podcast number 131 which featured Alicia and uh, I think her story is one that uh, you will resonate with I first met Alicia uh, a little over 10 years ago when my wife was working as Dr. Grobe's research assistant on his uh, psilocybin research project at the time uh, Alicia had a normal job uh, completely unrelated to psychedelic research But uh, she'd seen one of Dr. Grobe's lectures and uh, saw that he could use a little help with his PowerPoint presentation. So she volunteered to improve it for him. And uh, from there, she went on to volunteer for other little jobs that she saw where uh, Charlie could use some help. Now, when it came time for my wife to retire and uh, pass the torch on to someone else, rather than uh, insist that his research associate also be a registered nurse, as my wife was, Uh, My wife and Dr. Grobe helped Alicia get up to speed and uh, she stepped in and took over the research assistant responsibilities. And uh, now that the study has been completed, Alicia has uh, gone on to further her education and is working on a PhD. And on top of that, you can uh, hear her speak at uh, various psychedelic conferences around the country. In other words, Alicia has parlayed her volunteer work into a full-time career opportunity. I think of her as our uh, rags-to-riches psychedelic research story. And uh, now here is part of what Alicia had to say about uh, pursuing a career in psychedelic research. Hi, Lorenzo. I'm actually starting to get messages like this on a semi-regular basis. I know Charlie receives them all the time. Below are parts of a recent reply I sent to a young woman I met at the Horizons conference. The most important question to ask before embarking down a path is, where do you want that path to lead? a laboratory, a clinical setting, the classroom, or other setting. What do you see yourself doing? What are your strengths and skill sets? Stay informed about the current and upcoming research by visiting the websites for the Hefter Research Institute and Arrowhead quite often. Here's a link to an article that appeared in their bulletin a few years ago, and that will be of interest to you. (laughs) And then, interestingly, uh, Alicia also cites the uh, Dr. Andrew Sewell article, which is uh, an excellent article, and I'll be sure to link to it. Then Alicia goes on, At present, no one can really train others in this area in an official capacity because the substances are illegal. There are therapists working in the underground, but I'm not connected with any of them. I'm strictly clinical and legal. Pay attention to where the research is taking place and look for opportunities to volunteer. Places like Burning Man and similar festivals sometimes have harm reduction activities that might include helping people who are having a crisis due to a bad experience with substances. I hope some of this will be helpful to the saloner who contacted you. Much love, Alicia. And Then she added a little P.S. and said, What did you think of the Nat Geo program? I thought it was interesting that I was the only woman in it who wasn't tripping, doing something illegal, or both. (laughs) Yes, I noticed that too, Alicia. And uh, by the way, I was pleasantly surprised at uh, how well that special turned out. Usually these uh, mainstream programs are more biased against psychedelics than this particular program was. So if uh, you get a chance to see it when it uh, repeats, you might want to give it a look. Anyway, uh, hey, thanks for the input, Alicia. And uh, as you can tell, there is uh, still no clear career path in psychedelic research. But if you're called to explore this field, uh, I think now is really a great time to make your move because in another decade or so, uh, I think the field is going to be very crowded. So uh, if you want to make your mark in this area, uh, hey, don't wake too late in life, like I did. (laughs) Well, uh, that's all for today. And uh, next week we'll be hearing from someone other than Terrence McKenna and uh, Timothy Leary. Uh, I'm not sure who it's going to be yet, but uh, I'm sure we're going to like it. Uh, We've gotten so many submissions from some of our fellow salonners that I'm uh, really looking forward to uh, previewing some of them now. So I'll uh, close today's podcast again by reminding you that uh, this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, uh, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And if you are interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, You can uh, hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And uh, here's a last-minute thought. I know that uh, Andy and a few other fellow Saloners are making CD copies of uh, various podcasts to give as holiday gifts. Well, that got me to thinking about the fact that uh, since the Genesis Generation isn't in paperback, you really can't pass it along to a friend once you're finished with it. Of course, uh, I have been pleased to hear that uh, a lot of people are listening to it more than once. But if you're finished with it, uh, you certainly have my permission to uh, make a copy and pass it along to a friend. So, uh, hey, between now and the end of 2009, if you own a copy of the Genesis generation and want to give it to someone else, well, you have my permission to make a copy and uh, pass it along without any feelings of guilt. Happy Holidays to everyone. And for now... This is Lorenzo, signing off from cyberdelic space. Be well, my
1: friends. If you're living right, your life should just get more and more baroque, beautiful, complicated, mysterious, and then you die. And then it really gets interesting.